This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by the Art of Manliness store. Yes, we have a store at store.artofmanliness.com where you can find Art of Manliness swag, including t-shirts. We've got our one-of-a-kind camp coffee mug, our one-of-a-kind Ben Franklin's Virtue Journal, posters with Roger Kipling's poem If, Theodore Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech, poem Invictus, all sorts of stuff there. Check it out, store.artofmanliness.com. And if you use code AOM Podcast at checkout, you'll get 10% off your first purchase. All your purchases in the Art of Manliness store help support the content we produce on Art of Manliness Podcast, as well as on the website at artofmanliness.com. So thank you for your support. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Warrior is a word that gets thrown around a lot. There are road warriors, social justice warriors, ninja warriors. But what does it really mean to be a warrior? I guess today sets out a working definition in his book, The Warrior's Manifesto. His name is Daniel Modell, and he earned his master's degree in philosophy before going on to serve for 20 years in the New York City Police Department. Daniel and I begin our conversation discussing what makes a warrior a warrior and the lessons Spartacus can teach us on that score. Daniel and I then discuss why warriors do what they do why violence is sometimes necessary for peace, and what it means to be savage without becoming savage. We then discuss how bureaucracy kills leadership and why you don't need a title to be a leader. At the end of our conversation, Daniel talks about why it isn't just members of the military and law enforcement who need to understand the way of the warrior, but ordinary civilians as well. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash warrior manifesto. All right, Daniel Modell, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for inviting me, Brad. So you have a book, The Warrior's Manifesto. But before we get into the book, let's talk about your background, because I think it's really interesting. You're a 20-year veteran of the New York City Police, but you have a you got your bachelor's in philosophy and your master's in philosophy. So how did that happen? How did you go from philosopher to a New York City police officer. It's like a totally natural transition. I mean, both endeavors begin with a P, right? <laughs> so I developed an interest in philosophy as an undergraduate at New York University. At the time, it was, a, for me anyway, a, a pretty vibrant intellectual atmosphere on campus. We were encouraged to take a, a range of core courses, and philosophy really appealed to me particularly the history of ideas and how they developed and express themselves in different systems. At the same time, I'd been interested in the idea of policing for a long time. And so right around the time when I finished up my undergraduate studies, I took the exam to become a police officer in New York City. Now, as I recall it, there were some legal challenges to establishing a list from my exam. So I continued to pursue my interest in philosophy, and I ended up in a graduate program in the University of Texas at Austin. During that time, a list of candidates was finally established from my police exam, and I deferred my investigation to become a cop so that I could finish my studies at Austin. And once I did that, I moved back to New York City, started my investigation, and was hired by the NYPD in 1995. And uh, when you were doing your uh, graduate studies in philosophy, what type of philosophy were you focused on? I started out at the University of Texas with a specialty in ancient philosophy, during my time there, I ended up uh, hooking up with a professor by the name of Edwin Allaire, whose work was more in early modern philosophy. So over time, I, I developed an interest in, in um, that, Descartes, Hume, Barclay, figures like that. I, I still maintain an interest in ancient philosophy, uh, Plato and Aristotle, some of the pre-Socratics uh, uh, really interested me. But I ended up uh, writing my master's thesis on something more like uh, early modern with uh, with a layer. Well, I'm curious, when you finished your master's and you went back to become a cop, how did your background in philosophy influence your approach to policing? Uh, it's an interesting question. It's not that easy to answer. I'd say there was 
in some ways an influence, I, I guess in the broadest sense, inquiry, investigation, a willingness to, to think deeply about issues or problems are core factors in philosophy. And in some ways, although the practical details are very different, policing requires some of that uh, capacity and willingness to inquire, investigate, figure out what at root is is happening in a particular situation, often a, a volatile one. So in a very broad sense, there are these mirrored set of skills between the two. But that said, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate the similarities in the course of my career as a cop. I don't recall any encounters in which I was tempted to cite a passage from Plato's (laughs) Symposia or or to counter a crazy rant from an emotionally disturbed person by pointing out to them the law of non-contradiction or something like that. But Maybe the best way I could say it is this, speaking for myself, developing a thoughtful temperament was helpful in navigating some of the craziness of policing and and studying philosophy did help. I met. Yeah, it would have been great for a cop show if you you had a quip with the symposium. (laughs) (laughs) That's my next project (laughs) with, with quotes from Plato. Right. Um, And so are you still with NYPD or are you doing something else now? I'm not. I retired in 2015. So about three years ago, I retired as a a lieutenant. I, in the meantime, started a business with a couple of partners of mine. They were sergeants in the NYPD. Both of them are uh, also retired at this point. It's uh, called Aries Tactical and Emergency Management Solutions. We do self-defense and tactical training for civilians, law enforcement, security personnel, and we have a blast in it. Well, let's talk about you've also become a writer. So you got this book, The Warrior's Manifesto. What was the impetus behind this book? Was it basically trying to distill all your thoughts about... I don't know what it like what it means to be a warrior because again I mean you're, you're an interesting position there because you've studied this abstractly right on you know reading Plato and Aristotle but also you've lived it day to day so was there like a moment after you retired where you're like I need to write this book or has this been brewing in your mind for a long time and you finally just decided to put pit I guess finger to keyboard and get it out there yeah the latter Brett I, I'd been thinking about a project like that for for some time, certainly before I retired, it's hard to kind of bear down and write a book while you're, (laughs) you know, working third platoon at a a Bronx precinct. But yeah, I'd been thinking about it for some time. Uh, I would say there were two major factors that kind of pushed the book out of me. The first was, Oh, this kind of felt need to kind of understand in fundamental terms what the warrior professions are really about, why society needs military and law enforcement and the ideals that they should strive towards. But the second one, and and this was felt more towards the end of my career, it's related to the first in some ways, though, was uh, a desire to answer the relentless din of of criticism that was coming from some of the more shrill activists around at the time and directed at law enforcement currently. But look, let's not forget, there was some pretty shrill criticism of of the military not more than a a couple of generations ago. So I, I, I wanted to provide some sort of comprehensive answer to that kind of criticism, not directly, but more in the way of establishing a a framework that kind of detailed the extent to which uh, the warrior professions are critical and and really bulwarks of of civilization. Yeah, it's it's platonic. It's sort of platonic in a way. So let's get platonic, all right? Let's start off with definitions. So what, in your, your idea of a warrior, what makes a warrior a warrior? Yeah, good question, and uh, one that I I try to tackle in the book. I'd say when we raise large questions like what is an X, it's as a point of method, it's always good to start with 
common or traditional answers to the question. That is, by the way, a Socratic. Thanks for uh, right. That's what Socrates did. Right. So, for example, if you want to say that fighting for country is a defining characteristic of the warrior, you want to figure out whether that excludes too much and includes too much. I think that it does. So if you want to take that as a defining characteristic, let's not forget you have to include Japanese soldiers of the Axis who at certain times you know, caught Chinese infants on their bayonets in a kind of warped competition. And on the other hand, you would have to exclude an extraordinary figure like Spartacus, who didn't fight under the banner of, of any nation, quite the contrary. Having said that, by the way, fighting for country may be critically important personally for individual warriors and maybe should be in, in many cases. But I would say it can't be a defining characteristic of the warrior as such because it includes too much and excludes too much. The same is true, uh, if I could push forward with it a little bit, even if you want to say fighting in a war, right, really defines the warrior. Because think about it this way, there are many, many hundreds, thousands who have joined Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and with everything that that implies, willingness to fight and die so that others can sleep soundly. But given the times that they joined the military, which were relatively peaceful, they never did fight in a war. But I know plenty of these guys, as I'm sure you do, Brett, and uh, it seems wrong not to call them warriors. The same, I would say, is true of cops. Cops, at least in their capacity as cops, don't fight in wars, as that term's commonly understood anyway. But nevertheless, you know, I've served with many of them over the course of a couple of decades, and they are uh, every bit uh, the warrior. So, and then on the other side of it, not everybody who dons a uniform or who's even in a, in a trench is necessarily a warrior, and some of the better soldiers will, will be the first to, to tell you that. Hey, we could go on. I mean, historically, look, some who fought in wars after they defeated or achieved their military end would rape and pillage. And we don't generally want to apply the kind of the, the term warrior to those guys because they behave like thugs, right? Thug and warrior, at least in my mind, don't go together. So I, I think when you try to consider what it is that's essential to being a warrior, we're looking for something larger. And I would say that it is fighting for an ideal understood as such as a matter of professional obligation and as a matter of principle when that ideal is potentially threatened by violence or attack. Gotcha. And I mean, you you mentioned Spartacus. In the book, you went into great detail. I'm using him as sort of an example of of what it means to be a warrior, right? Yeah. Because he, nece- yeah, he said he didn't fight for a country. That's right. But despite that, you know, he, you still considered him a warrior. So what is it about Spartacus that uh, lines up with that definition that you've come up with? Well, I, I think that what's so compelling about Spartacus as a historical figure, and, and in no small part as a, as a figure of myth, is that he defied all of these traditional categorizations associated with the warrior. Like I said, and as I point out in the book, he didn't fight under the banner of any nation. He certainly didn't have a traditional organization to his army. And, and yet he fought with a, a purity of purpose uh, and, and a kind of stubborn defiance in the face of adversity that any warrior would surely recognize in himself. So I, I think he really captured uh, very neatly that 
you're, you fight for a larger ideal, in his case, freedom. He started out as, or he was captured and, and kind of forced into slavery in the gladiatorial games. So he fought for freedom, both for himself and, and rallied others to his, his cause. And when that was threatened, as it was immediately, by counterattacks and his possible destruction, you know, he fought for it. He fought for himself with, with all that he had, tactical savvy, raw guts, and, and again, all in the service of that larger ideal of freedom. And, and that's a warrior. I mean, uh, I think that really sums up what a warrior is. So we've talked about the what of the warrior. They, they fight for some ideal. Let's talk about those ideals. That's like the why of the warrior. How do you decide which ideals are worth fighting for, right? Because that, that gets tricky, right? Because, you know, everyone think everyone, like it's that phrase, everyone's a hero in their own brain or their own mind. Yeah. Um, so they might think they're fighting for a great cause, but it might not be. It, it, it can get uh, pretty tricky at times. I would say we, there are some views that are obviously kind of off. If you're fighting for the right to exterminate a defenseless minority, it, it seems a wild set of rationalizations that would justify that in your own mind, where you're still calling yourself a warrior, somebody who's fighting for some worthy cause. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, that makes sense so far. Yeah. Um, so while I, I think you're right, there's, there are issues that are debatable around the periphery. At the core, a warrior is, is a protector. He, a warrior doesn't want to fight or kill the defenseless or the innocent to the extent that a, a warrior wants to fight. He wants to fight bad guys or he wants to fight another warrior. So at, at core, I, I think we start there in, in trying to figure out what it is that the ideals toward which warriors should strive. Does that sort of answer the question at least yeah. in a preliminary way? Yeah, in a preliminary way, sure. Well, let's get, I think, Examples are useful, like Plutarch, right? That's why I love Plutarch. He gives actual examples, and you do this in your book. You talk about the Persian War mm -hmm. as sort of a case study in exploring the why of the warriors. What, what can the Persian War teach us about that? So the Persian War, I think, is instructive in this sense. It was, it was a conflict between two alternative visions, right, of, of society, one represented by Xerxes was essentially planned, despotic, surrounded by uh, vassal colonies, and Greece, which was really a series of separate nations, separate city-states, each inclined often to spar with the other, each uh, very jealous about guarding its independence and with at least a rudimentary respect for freedom. So when Xerxes invaded Greece to make it yet another vassal state, the Greeks, or at least some of them, formed a confederation to stand up against that attack and maintain their freedom and their independence. The One of the most dramatic battles of that conflict was the 300 at Thermopylae, they, uh, there was a, a small group of Spartans for religious reasons. Sparta didn't enter fully uh, into the war, at least not at that time. And so a small group of 300 led by their uh, King Leonidas took up a position at a terrain that was tactically advantageous to them, Thermopylae, the hot gates, right? It was narrow. And so allowed them to manage and control of the conflict, even though the Persian army was enormous, far larger, of course, than the, the 300 some estimates, like from Herodotus, say that there was a million of them. That might be an exaggeration, but in any case, there were many, many more than the 300 Spartans. For several days, the Spartans were able to defy and defeat 
the Persian army and gave time for the Greek confederation to set themselves up both at sea and on land. And it was their sacrifice that allowed the battles at Salamis and Plataea to go the way of the Greeks. The Spartans were defeated ultimately, I think almost exclusively because they were betrayed by one of their own and, and they ended up getting flanked by the Persians. But they all died to a man. And again, they died in the service of freedom. They didn't want to function as yet another vassal state in the enormous empire of, of Persia. Th- that's a worthy ideal to, to fight for. Right, yeah. And yeah, so I think the Spartan 300 are, are great examples of that. Yeah, and even then that it gets tricky, right? Because from what I, if I remember from my classical history, like per, the Persian emperors, yeah, they'd come in, they make them these, you know, the states, well, let's call them, they weren't states, but like these or, these city states, mm-hmm. part of their kingdom, and they'd be vassal and had to pay taxes. But they were, other than that, they were pretty lenient. Like they let them continue to worship their own gods, kind of function in their own culture. They didn't impose Persian culture on them. And so it'd be like, yeah, that sounds not so bad, right? Like, you know, they just kind of leave us alone and give us some protection maybe. But and the yeah, there's you know there's there's always a price and that price is always that freedom and the the Greeks weren't willing to uh, pay that price. That's right. Uh, the the Greeks were at that time fifth century Greeks were an unruly lot. I, I think that was their great virtue and part of what what makes them intellectually so interesting. The advancements in philosophy, mathematics, geometry, inquiry generally was really potent in at least some of the cultures. Interestingly enough, I mean, you're right, history is kind of sloppy, not so much in Sparta, (laughs) despite their bravery at Thermopylae. The Spartans were not uh, generally a really inquisitive lot like the Athenians. And in fact, I'll, I'll go further and say that the Spartans in general were much more noble in defeat than they were in victory. The Spartans, after all, had a whole system of, of helotry, if, if you remember any of that. It was, in many ways, a slave society itself. So yeah, history, look, is always uh, more sloppy maybe than we'd like. But on the whole, on the whole, when you compare the Persian Empire at the time under Xerxes, there was a definite overlord at its center. Um, he did see himself as a god. He wasn't alone in that, but he did see himself as a god and thought that the remainder of the world should come to heel because, after all, he was a god. Uh, on the other side, you have uh, the Greeks who didn't accept that, who believed in at least some of them, in the power of individual inquiry, the importance of freedom, democracy. And between those two, I I think that uh, the Greek approach is the right one. And in this case, at least, it it showed in battle. Yeah, and I imagine that the why of the warrior, I mean, it's something that I think someone who's in in that position has to grapple with. They probably grapple with it all the time, whether they're a police officer or a soldier, you know, they, they sign up for a position where their job is to execute an order or execute a law, right? But they might have to think, they might think, well... Is the law just? They might go through them, but they still, have to, you know, they're, they're in that position where they have to. That's their job, but there's still there's that internal struggle. Well, is this the right thing? I mean, how do you, in your experience, or just talking to other people in that position, how what's the thought process that goes on there when they're trying to figure out the why of the warrior? They might have this ideal, but on the day to day, they might feel like they're coming up short on it. I think as a practical matter, most guys in law enforcement and the military have a healthy respect for the notions of freedom and individual rights. So in the broad sense, I I don't think that they struggle at that level. It but as you're getting to and pointing out, it's more on, you know, with particular decisions and our particular policies are, are they just? Now how do you navigate that? It's a, it's a good question. I think you 
you never want to forget your humanity, right? And you always want to remember that in the end, you're there to protect, right? In the broader sense, the defenseless, the innocent, those who aren't in, in, really in a position to defend themselves. And so if you start to veer towards, look, I'm, I'm just sort of doing this by the numbers and for the numbers, if I can put it that way, my, oh, to, to be specific about it, my boss or executive management wants X number of criminal court summonses issued per month or X number of arrests. And so, um, you know, I'm just going to do it, even though discretion under other circumstances would press me to probably give a break uh, in, in a lot of these cases. Otherwise, that's when you start veering into really losing a sense of yourself. And that is a problem in bureaucracies where performance is so commonly measured quantitatively. It's that, uh, to borrow a phrase from Jerry Muller, the tyranny of metrics. But when you start thinking sort of almost exclusively in terms of numbers, uh, you're, you're, you're going wrong. You want to think more qualitatively about what it is that you do because if you don't, you kind of sap the nobility from the enterprise. No, that, yeah, that makes sense. It's a uh, very Aristotelian, right? Where you know it's the you're trying. It's like using your what do you call it, phronesis, your practical wisdom, to figure out what the right thing to do in the right at the right time for the right reasons. To be sure, yeah. To be sure, and, and uh, like I said, one one tell is this tendency nowadays to kind of quantify everything and think that you've summed up the person or the world by by doing that. Policing, and, and I would say the military too, has always been more art than science. Don't get me wrong, science plays a role in both professions. But it's always been more art than science because, after all, in the end, it's about human relationships and how you navigate those under extreme circumstances, to be sure. But nevertheless, they're human relationships. And they, in the end, human relationships can't be finally quantified, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Facebook thinks you can quantify relationships, yeah. but that's not, that's not how it works in real life. Yeah. Well, so let's, let's kind of carry on this idea about the tension between a warrior and bureaucracy. Yeah. We had a guest on a couple of weeks ago talking about the worth of war, and he talks about all the innovations that have come from warfare, and one of them is bureaucracy. It's, we got bureaucracy from to, to wage war more efficiently. So there's a role for bureaucracy because it makes things more efficient make sure things get done. But as you said, there, it's a double-edged sword and it can sort of muck things up and make things harder on those, those sort of day-to-day questions. So in the book you talk about, there's a dichotomy between leaders and bureaucrats. How do you, what's the difference between the two? Uh, a, a leader is, is really all about vision. He looks to articulate a vision for those who follow him, subordinates, even peers, and sometimes, frankly, even uh, supervisors. And a leader looks to define a common sense of purpose and to inspire his guys to act in accordance with the, the best within them. He's looking to bring out the best in his guys and the best in himself. Again, that's a, a qualitative endeavor, right? Going back to that whole quality, quantity a dichotomy that we briefly talked about before. But I'd say at root and, and perhaps most importantly in practice, the leader treats his men as men. Now contrast that with the bureaucrat who concerns himself primarily with securing his status within an organization, particularly the executive managers, the idol that a functionary kind of worships is moving up promotion. And, and so the art that he learns is not so much 
how to bring out the best within the guys that you work with, but rather manipulation, politicking, um, careerism. And he, he can't inspire people because, among other things, the bureaucrat doesn't generally share glory, doesn't accept blame. One thing that you'll almost never hear from a bureaucrat is, that's my fault. That one's on me. It's my responsibility. But you will hear that regularly from a leader. So the the bureaucrat, especially a certain kind of bureaucrat, is, is really concerned with propelling himself forward within a bureaucracy. So among other things, what the bureaucrat has to master is process, protocol, paperwork, procedure. And in many ways, these define the limits of his world, whether the process, the paperwork, the procedural minutiae serve any meaningful purpose. It's a question that a functionary never really raises. And in fact, functionaries don't question period because they understand implicitly, if nothing else, that pushing upward in a bureaucracy means not upsetting the status quo and not rocking the boat. The leader is the opposite, right? Uh, he questions when it makes sense. He, he, he challenges when he needs to. He speaks out because he's motivated by a larger sense of, of right and wrong for himself, for his guys, and for the organization too, for that matter. So I think those are kind of the critically different portraits of the leader and the bureaucrat. I, I wonder, I'm, I'm actually curious about the guy that you spoke to about the development of, of bureaucracy. And I, I wonder whether it's really as efficient as, as we think. When I think of bureaucracy sometimes, and I just kind of run through a, a, a Rolodex of concretes, I think of experiences that I had at, I don't know, the DMV or the post office. And, and um, you know, they don't seem all that efficient. And, and, and frankly, I'll, I'll say even having been in the NYPD for 20 years, so I'm kind of sort of intimately familiar with that bureaucracy. Efficiency isn't a word that I would attach to, to the organization, but I wonder if maybe he wasn't talking about the initial stages of development of bureaucracies in military contexts. Yeah, I think he was talking more about that. There's, I guess yeah. it was just like, or, there was actually some, some semblance of organization. Mm-hmm. That went on that didn't exist before. As you were talking, describing the difference between a bureaucrat and a leader, and you're describing a bureaucrat, I w- the thought that came to mind was that it it would be it's really easy to f- become a bureaucrat, yeah, right? Because because as you said, like that you have a system, like you know exactly what you're supposed to do. That's right. And that's com- that's comforting, right? Yeah. So you just yeah. you do that. So I can see why. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of times we feel like, oh, I'm I'm I would never become a bureaucrat. Uh, but like, I think our tendency would be like, yeah, that's nice because I got someone, I got something to tell me exactly what to do each and every day. And I don't have to think at all. You, you, that's right. You're, you're exactly right. The comfort of bureaucracy is that you never really have to raise larger questions for yourself. Your role is entirely defined by procedure and, and protocol. Hannah Arendt made a, a really interesting point in regards to this in her book on Eichmann, where she said, look, in some ways, we want to see a figure like Eichmann as this deeply and obviously evil Darth Vader, Satan-like character. But the truth is, he was the perfect bureaucrat. I mean, all he was really doing was pushing paper from one side of the desk to the other, because that's what the bureaucracy defined his role as. The fact that the papers involved transporting defenseless people to gas chambers never really fundamentally entered his thinking. He was all about his role within the bureaucracy. But of course, that's one of the problems with bureaucracy. It, it, it is comforting in some sense. It is easy, but what it takes from you 
is that very human impulse to question, but am I doing the right thing? And so that's the deep problem with bureaucracy. And it certainly asserts itself in, I think, many, many different organizations, but certainly law enforcement and and military organizations. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. All right. Learning new skills is a great way to stay sharp and stay ahead. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy the Great Courses Plus. With the Great Courses Plus, you can learn tips and tools from award-winning experts that can help you both professionally and personally. You can explore topics like history, science, philosophy, photography, videography, writing, nutrition. There's psychology. There's, I mean, you name it, they've got it. One course I recommend checking out right now that I've been listening to is The Art of Debate. Debating skills are useful in almost any setting. Of course, I don't think a lot of people know how to debate unless you count screaming at people on social media. No, that's not debate. If you want to get ahead of the pack, check out this course. You'll learn things about how to quickly construct persuasive rebuttals, how to come with arguments on the fly. Super well thought out. You can watch your Great Courses Plus courses from your TV, your computer, tablet, phone, or you can stream just the audio with the Great Courses Plus app. So anywhere, there's no excuse not to learn. If you'd like to try this out, I've got a offer for you. You can do a free trial and get unlimited access to the entire library at Great Courses Plus by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. Start your free trial now again at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. One more time, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. Also by Saks. Ever wonder what makes an awesome pair of underwear? Probably thought that when you're driving around. Comfort is obviously important, the way the fabric makes you feel, but support also plays a huge part. You want to feel secure throughout the day, not have to adjust yourself. Saks underwear has combined these two components unlike ever before, creating what may be the most comfortable pair of underwear in the world. First off, Saks is designed differently. They've got the patented pouch, the ballpark pouch. It's these internal mesh panels that keep everything down there in place. No more adjusting, no more chafing, especially is important when it's hot and humid out and you're out in your garage gym. Ballpark pouch, lifesaver. And they also use super soft moisture wicking fabrics that lets you breathe down there and also repels BO. So if you're looking for a thing to check out, check out the kinetic boxer brief at Saks underwear. It's my favorite one there. But if you're not a boxer brief guy, they just got briefs. So if you're straight up whitey tidy guy, they got that as well with the ballpark pouch. Now, if you'd like to get this at a discount, I got an offer for you. Go to saxunderwear.com and use promo code AOM at checkout for $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Again, that's Saks underwear. That's S-A-X-X underwear.com promo code AOM to get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. And now back to the show. And I imagine that there's a tension for individuals who are striving to be leaders because on the one hand, they want to question and they want to make sure they're doing the right thing. And But the other hand, you have to sort of play the game. If you just just run roughshod and just you just become belligerent and say, you guys are idiots, you're doing everything wrong, like no one's going to listen to you, right? They'll you'll get kicked out or just ignored. So how, and maybe in, in your own experience or seeing the, the experience of other people in law enforcement or the military, how do they balance that that tension of being a leader, but also having to sort of play the game so people actually pay attention to them? Does that make sense? Well, let me start by saying, uh, frankly, a lot of them didn't. Leadership within law enforcement organizations among executive management, I don't think that it's common where you would expect to see it, by the way, other things being equal. But it's not that common, and it's not common for precisely the reason that you cite if you don't, as it were, play the game, (laughs) if you cast yourself as somebody who's going to question and and rock the boat – it's you're not going to be pushed forward in the bureaucracy. Bureaucracy loves its own status quo. <laughs> so if you're all about change and trying to make things better and trying to improve morale, for example, you, you're going to have a hard go getting pushed up with bureaucracy. It's what's required <laughs> certainly more than questioning and what is admired by the bureaucracy more than challenging is how could I push forward and protect the agency? I had um, I had an interesting conversation once with uh, a, a very high-ranking chief in the NYPD. He's still there. It's, his name's not important. But it was during the whole controversy with stop, question, and frisk. The court case was underway. And so I was chatting with him about it. And so I I said, the case doesn't seem to be going well for the agency. And look, maybe that's right. You know, 
it's not very clear that the stop question and frisk policy was ever a, a great approach to getting guns off the street. That is to say, once again, quantity over quality. But, but in any case, let's, we could talk more about that if you want. But I really want to actually just highlight the, the nature of the discussion I had with this chief. And so he said, yeah, well, look, hopefully the, the court case does go well. For, for the agency. And I said to him at one point, but look, maybe that's what we need. You know, what if we were wrong about the whole approach to stop question and frisk? And he stopped for a minute and just kind of stared, I, I'm tempted to say somewhat vacantly at me, but then with a certain amount of edginess, he said, well, look, in the end, you, you got to defend the department, don't you? And I said, but what if the department's wrong? And I tell you, that was really the last discussion I ever had with him. He didn't, uh, he, he didn't want to talk to me anymore after that. And that captures the bureaucratic mentality at its, at its most dysfunctional core. You just don't question whether the policy that you're implementing really makes sense, whether it really serves a larger mission, whether it's the right thing to do or, or not. It's really just about defending the agency or the bureaucracy or the organization just because that becomes your whole world. So I might have gone a little far afield in, in tackling the question that you answered, Brett, but it's... uh yeah, it's 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 difficult to to be a leader and to be an executive manager in a large bureaucracy, at least at, as they're currently constituted. It's just not a common thing. It, so much of of executive management is about getting the bars and the stars, and there doesn't seem to be much active thought beyond that. I hate to paint such a pessimistic picture of things, but I, I, I'm afraid that it's well-grounded. So uh, I imagine in your idea of a warrior, a warrior would be a leader, have those traits, and not a bureaucrat, correct? Sure, because the warrior is driven by or should be driven by a sense of right and wrong. A warrior would never be disinclined to question. That doesn't mean that when he's questioning his every single action. I mean, when you've got to fight, you've got to fight. And, and most of the time, it's pretty clear uh, when you have to do that. But there's a whole series of peripheral issues that as a, an, an independent actor who's striving towards the best within himself and towards larger ideals, he yeah, he would tend to to question and to challenge when that's necessary. So I think the rudiments of leadership kind of fall within every warrior. Not necessarily every warrior is a leader, but all the rudiments of solid leadership, I think, are within the, the warrior. Um, and that's uh, Things like uh, self-possession, the willingness to grow, the willingness to ask whether at any given point um, I'm doing the right thing, you know, whether our, our sense of purpose has gotten lost along the way somewhere. So, yes, I would say leadership certainly comes from those who dedicate themselves to developing the art of the warrior and I don't think that you can develop into a leader if you're mired in process and protocol and paperwork and procedures, you know, you know, the, uh, the, the, the real center of most larger organizations. So we've been talking about the ideals of a warrior, uh, what makes a warrior, but we haven't hit on the actions of a warrior because they have these ideals that they fight for. That, so that means they have to use violence sometimes. And you call this the, the, central, the central riddle of the warrior. 
right? That yeah. To fight violence, you have to use violence. Why is that the central riddle? So there's a, a common belief that violence begets violence, right? And so if the warrior uses violence, and surely he does, doesn't that merely perpetuate something that's not at all desirable? That is to say, in using violence, you merely beget further violence. So the warrior is really just a kind of taking up his appointed role in this perpetual dance that never ends. So it, it is a, a, a riddle and it's a challenge that's, that's worth thinking about and answering. I would say that historically, as a general principle, it's not true that violence necessarily begets violence. I'll give you a specific example that may be instructive. Let's take the conflict between primarily the United States and Japan during World War II. So fighting in the Pacific was ferocious during that conflict, and Imperial Japan had said quite explicitly that they were willing to fight to the last man rather than surrender. And partly as a result of that, Truman ended up okaying the dropping of two atomic bombs on Japan, and it wrought obviously horrible devastation. After that, the Japanese did surrender, and so what happened as a result of that? The Japanese rejected the former philosophy that kind of pushed him, pushed them into alliances with the other Axis powers. They rebuilt, they reorganized, uh, they became an extraordinary economic power, and at this point, geopolitically, Japan and the United States are fast allies and have been for decades. And I don't think that any sensible person worries that Japan is secretly seething with rage, waiting for a moment to wreak vengeance on us. So, I mean, it's instructive. We dropped atomic bombs on Japan. That didn't beget further violence. In fact, there has been like I said, decades of peace between the two countries since. And let me try to bring it down to an even more individual level. When your mom or your dad or both told you, stand up to the bully, did they tell you that because they thought that standing up to him, perhaps fighting him, would beget more violence? The answer is surely no. They gave you that advice because, first of all, you should be willing to defend yourself. You should be willing to stand up for yourself or you're going to be a doormat your whole life. And more than that, what they at least intuitively recognized in giving you that advice is that on the whole, the bully will back down if you confront him forcibly. And in fact, if you have to fight a bully, even if you lose, it's unlikely that he's going to target you again because bullies are looking to target or attack what they think is weakness and not strength. So historically and logically, I don't think that there's any real reason to accept the premise that violence necessarily begets violence. Now, you could give me examples of, of instances in which it has. Actually, the armistice at the end of, of World War I is a, a good example of a kind of strategically ineffective uh, of violence that ultimately led to a worse violence. But in any case, the, the larger point is violence doesn't necessarily beget violence. Sometimes violence and decisive violence is the only way to stop an initiated act of, of violence. And, and so that's why it's just part of the necessary makeup of the warrior professions that they be skilled at the use of violence. Violence uh, is a tool in the end. 
in itself, it's neither good nor bad, right? I mean, it's amply attested in, in nature, as I pointed out in, in the book. If a, a lion or a pride of lions attack a wildebeest, rip out its throat and consume it, that's certainly violent, but it would be silly to say that it was a good or a bad thing for the lion to do in moral terms. That's It's just silly. Right? So violence in itself is neither good nor bad. It's when we're talking about human action and there's choice involved, that's when you can talk about good or bad. And intention and context are, are critically important in figuring out whether a particular act of violence is good or bad. Uh, we could talk some more about that if you want, but uh, I probably droned on a bit too long. Well, um, so violence is sometimes the answer. Yeah. Um, you have this great line in your book that uh, a warrior has to be savage without becoming a savage. What I mean, I imagine that's hard. Or is that there's that I mean that line from Nietzsche, like be careful when you go look for monsters because you'll become a monster too. Yeah. So how does that look like in the life of a of a warrior? or a law enforcement military guy who someone who has to use violence and not let that, I don't know, degrade them where they start to like it and enjoy it. And they become savage, like you say. Right. Or sure. The, so you want your warriors to fight savagely when that's necessary. And I'll be concrete about it again, because I think that's always uh, helpful in in tackling uh, an issue or a question. If, uh, let's start with something in in law enforcement, say, if a pedophile attacks a child, that's certainly an act of, of evil. And you want a cop if he comes on that scene to use violence to stop that act of evil, that initiated act of, of violence. Well, by the way, it really could be anybody, right? Civilian or anybody. You're certainly justified in using violence to stop the pedophile from attacking the, the child. And let's, let's shift to a, a military context. If the goal of a special operations unit is to take a town that has strategic value or where there's munitions stored or, or anything like that, they should fight savagely to achieve that end. But once the objective is achieved, there is no real justification for then raping and assaulting and, and beating up the, the villagers, right? Or in the case of uh, uh, law enforcement, once somebody is managed and brought under control, there there's no value in and no justification for then getting in extra beatings on the person. Because if you do that, if you do that, you then become the very thing that you exist to fight against. You've now shifted over into instead of fighting savages, you've become a savage yourself. So that internal contradiction, right, is something that you you want to you you would look to avoid, right? Uh, I mean, so so I mean, I guess the question is like, how do you avoid that? Is it just being self aware? Is it talking with your comrades? About this, what what is it that keeps you from going over to becoming a savage? I think self awareness is is critically important in that, as in all things. So, yes, self awareness is a, a critical first step, and you know, consistently sort of questioning yourself, checking your premises, making sure you remember your mission and, and the purpose for which you exist professionally, talking to and having a, a common sense of purpose with other warriors, military, law enforcement, freedom fighters, for that matter, that also would tend to keep you grounded. It, it is it is a difficult thing uh, milling around the precincts of, of violence as a matter of professional obligation 
And it is possible, and some guys do succumb to, oh, that, uh, that tendency to just a wallow in the violence. That's, that's all they come to know. But my sense of it is those guys might, the guys who do sort of fall into that trap always did have a kind of tendency towards, towards thuggery. I mean, the guys who really respect the oath that they take to protect the Constitution, and in our country in any case, to protect the Constitution and the rights of individuals and, and, and you know, protect the freedom for people to do everything, including protest against you, those guys tend to be okay. I think it's the guys who, who always did have a little bit of a, a tendency and a taste for violence as such that fall into the, the, the trap of, of, of just wallowing in it and kind of yielding to it. So we've been talking a lot about law enforcement, military. I know we have a lot of LEOs and military guys listen to the podcast, but what about civilians? What, why do you think it's important for civilians to understand what you're trying to tackle here with your, with your book, Warrior's Manifesto? I think there's a, a couple of reasons, and, and I think it, it certainly has a value for any civilians who would uh, be interested in, in reading it and kind of delving into the, the topics that I, I delve into. Part of it is just that, look, there's lots of cops and, and lots of soldiers out there. We all know at least one, right, and usually know at least one pretty well. And so if you do want to have a sense of what it means to take on the obligations of the warrior in a professional setting, I think this book will get you on, on your way towards that. But there, I think, maybe is even a deeper reason and might be a deeper appeal for civilians, those who aren't necessarily in law enforcement or in the military. And that's this. You may meet a moment in, in the course of your life where you may have to use violence, where you may have to protect yourself, where you may have to protect somebody else, a loved one, a friend, or even a stranger uh, for that matter. And in that moment, uh, you are a, a warrior. And so to kind of gain some understanding of of what ultimately that moment means hopefully it's not much more than a moment or two but to gain some understanding of what that moment means I kind of to think deeply about it you know why did I I, I step up why was it in, important for me to take action in, in in this moment I think you'll you'll get at least some answer from from the book, right? Anything can happen. And, you know, uh, even as a civilian, you should be prepared and you should think about how it is that you want to act in a situation that calls for potentially violence, but um, certainly a firm stand, if nothing else. In fact, the first section of the book, The, the Spirit of the Warrior, is, is really directed towards civilians. So I think there's some, some value in, in those two things for civilians. Well, Daniel, this has been a good conversation. Um, besides the book, is there someplace people can go to learn more about your work? Uh, I've written some articles. The Warriors Manifesto is the only book that I have written thus far, but I've written some articles. They are, for the most part, about topics in law enforcement. I've written some articles on the active shooter phenomenon. I've written some articles on uh, case law and some, some of the more notorious cases involving police shootings. I think probably the most convenient way for anybody to access that is at our website. It's www areastactics.com, A-R-E-S-T-A-C-T-I-C-S.com. And they might, find, they might find some value in those articles. Well, Daniel, thanks for coming on. It's been a good conversation. Brett, thanks so much. I appreciate it.
My guest today was Daniel Modell. He's the author of the book, Warrior's Manifesto. It's available on amazon.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash warrior's manifesto, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.